11. When one of you has a grievance, grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before unrighteous, the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to ju judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? If you have, if you have such so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dis a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, the, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together as your people. We thank you for the gift of your word and to to hear it preached this morning. We pray that you would be with Mark and help him to boldly proclaim your truth and pray that you would just give us open open ears and open eyes and, and soft hearts to, to hear your word and apply it to our lives that we might go from here to proclaim the good news of Christ and to glorify you. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I thought about giving a couple extra announcements just for the fun of it. But I thought 30 announcements was enough, so no, I really didn't. We get to continue in 1 Corinthians. Um, if, you, if you remember, he's, last week we got into the, the part where he becomes a little bit more practical. He starts dealing with specific issues, but he spends the first four chapters of his letter, Paul does, reminding the church of his teachings, and he's stating that he believes they truly are Christians. So he's reaffirming, you are believers, you are Christians. And so this letter is written to the church, not to unbelievers, but to believers. That, that divisions, though, within the church over the style of teaching rather than the content of that teaching are happening reveals some major dysfunction within the church family. And so he's seeing, he's getting reports back. Can I put up a... The church is a little bit screwed up. I mean, it's just a little, little messy. There's, a, there's some dysfunction that is happening within the family because preferences have become more important than solid teaching. The, the messenger, messenger has been lifted high and the message hasn't been forgotten, but it's, it's been put down lower than the style of teaching. And that has opened the doors for, for false teaching to start to creep its way into the church. Arrogance and pride were controlling the actions of the church, creating an air of superiority over even Paul himself in regards to their spiritual maturity. They began to, to if you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about, he, he gets, Paul gets sarcastic. He starts to say, well, oh, if only we were like you. And he's using that not to, 
shame or humiliate, but to teach them, to say, you're acting as if, as if you are more spiritually mature than me, and I'm an apostle, the one who, was, who Christ came to personally, and I have taught all these churches, and, and he's not arrogant and lifting up some, I am better than you. What he's saying is, check your heart. Check your heart. Am I, are, are you really, you're acting in such a way that you are the most spiritual mature person in the world, or the most spiritually mature church in the world, and I'm here to tell you, you're not. And then he begins to lay out all of the issues that are happening within the church to show this, this is a bad thing. It's you, you're arrogant. You're thinking of yourself higher than you, you ought to. And so he, starting in chapter 5, begins to get more specific. It was reported to him that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the church not only tolerated sexual immorality in their midst, but they boasted about it. And if you remember, there was a, a man within the church who took his father's wife, uh, that's all, he took his father's wife, so in marriage or um, sexual infidelity, whatever it may be, whether it was his real mom or his stepmom, they're both bad. They're both wrong. And so he's saying, you, this is happening in your midst and you're boasting about it. Instead, you should call the sexually immoral to repentance. And should he refuse, then you need to deliver him over to Satan, he says, for the destruction of his fleshly desires and the preservation of his faith. The church is to disassociate with anyone proclaiming to be a servant of Christ, but is living an unrepentant, sexually immoral, greedy, idolatrous life. And he makes specific to, makes a specific point to say, I'm not talking about unbelievers of the world. This is Christians saying, I follow Jesus Christ and refusing to follow Jesus Christ. There's a problem there. There's a concern there. But if you have someone who is not a believer, they don't have faith in Christ, and they're coming and saying, I don't know who this guy is. They're not held to the same spiritual standard as a Christian because they don't know any better. They're, they haven't been changed, which we're going to talk about today. They haven't been transformed. And so Paul says, I'm not talking about unbelievers, because if I was talking about unbelievers, then you'd have to take yourself out of the world, and that's against Christ's command to be in the world, but not of the world. So he's saying, you need to disassociate with people who say, I am a Christian, and yet are living a life of unrepentant sexual immorality specifically. To allow such people to remain in the church is actually not caring and loving to them. It's reinforcing sin. And that's not a good thing. It's reinforcing unrepentance. It's dangerous for them because they begin to see, this is okay, I can live this life, but they will be held accountable to that. And if they're living the sexually immoral life, that is evidence that it's a real possibility they might not actually be a, live, a believer. And they need to be told that, and they need to see that. Again, not out of hate, not out of anger, but out of love. We desire for people, as a church, we desire for people to believe in Christ and obey Him. Not the other way around. Obey Him to be saved by Him. No, we, are, we want people to be saved by Christ so that then they would obey Him out of love for their master. But to allow them to continue in this life is dangerous for them, but it's dangerous for the church as a whole to celebrate sin, 
To celebrate disobedience and rebellion against God is to excuse and tolerate unfaithfulness to Christ within the church. And such unrepentant people are what Paul calls a yeast to the church, permeating everything until the whole church is infected with unfaithfulness. And so Paul's saying, watch out, beware, call people to, to repentance, and, and if they refuse to be repentant, and they're, and they're celebrating and boasting about their dis, disobedience and their rebellion to God, against God, then you need to disassociate with them, remove them from your fellowship. And should they repent in the future, then you welcome them back with open arms. Welcome back, brother. Welcome back, sister. Today's passage deals with grievances that are leading to lawsuits between fellow believers. So he's, it seems like he's now shifting to a whole complete, a whole complete different, uh, different topic. And in one sense it is, but it's the same problem. There's a deeper issue. So the discord within the family, the church family, is evidence that there's a deeper issue with spiritual immaturity in the church. They're acting like the world. And Paul says, you should not be doing these things. Now, every family, every church family is included in that, has discord and conflict. But it seems that this grievance in Corinth between brothers has gone to another level and now is being brought before the Roman court. Now, we need to have some clarification as to what's going on in the courts during Paul's day. Because when we think of, oh, we're going to do a lawsuit within the court system, we think of our court system right now. You file a lawsuit, you get your lawyers, you go before a judge, and the judge or a jury decides between what, what is lawful, what is right, where is it, deciding on justice, basically. But in Paul's time, the courts were very different. There was no jury of peers, and the judgments were not blind. They were not seeing the, they were not seeing the parties that are involved, where they were seeing the parties involved and not the justice that needed to happen in uh, looking at the facts, what's really going on. It was nothing about that. According to theologian Roy Kiampa, courts in those days were about power and money, not justice. Lady Justice was not blind in that society. Instead, she held her hand out to the one who would give the biggest bribe and had the largest social or political influence. Now, we can argue all day, is our court system the same way? I ain't going there, okay? So I know you're, some of you are thinking that. That's not the point. It's very, that system is very different from our system today, even, even if there are issues with, with ours. But that type of environment... It doesn't create a chance for brothers to reconcile their differences. Instead, it creates a chance for one to destroy the reputation or even financially cripple uh, the other. And in the case of the Corinthians, we're not talking about a violent offense or a capital crime. Paul calls it a trivial case. Some sort of small and insignificant dispute between two believers has gotten out of hand and one has brought the other to court. That's what, in, that's what trivial means. It's insignificant. It's tiny. And so Paul gives two reasons 
why such things shouldn't happen within the church family. First, it harms the reputation of, an unbel- uh, of the church to an unbelieving world. And second, the church has a different view of life than an unbelieving world. So the reputation of the church, keeping the good reputation of the church, that can sound, especially in legal cases, can sound a lot like hiding illegal activity, like something, something bad happens and they don't creak and we're just going to hush it and keep it quiet. That's not what he's talking about. It's not what he means. He's trying to get across that we are to be different from the world. What drives the way that we live, what we think, how we talk, how we act are all to be different from the unbelieving world in which we live. And the inability of the Corinthian church to handle a trivial case, minor case. We're not, we're not talking about um, uh, you know, stealing money from the church. We're not talking about um, uh, sexually immoral things within the church. This is a trivial case. To handle such an insignificant issue and take it before an unbelieving, unfaithful, ungodly judge as evidence to an unbelieving world that there is nothing different between them and the Corinthian believers. The Christian church or the Christian life is to be marked by selflessness, seeking the glory of God and serving others in love. But for two Christians to seek the destruction of one another does harm to their witness and to the witness of the church. It harms the reputation of the church and it ultimately harms the reputation of Jesus Christ, whom we are to represent. Now, don't hear me wrong. Don't don't hear me that the church needs to put on a good face, act like nothing bad has happened within the family. Maybe some of you have families like that. Maybe you are one of those people where like you, something bad happened and we're not going to talk about it and there's a giant elephant in the room at every Christmas. But we're not going to talk about it because if we talk about it, it's going to make everybody uncomfortable even though everybody knows it's there and everybody's uncomfortable. Okay, we have, we, we, as a church body, we want to be able to deal with issues. If there's, if there's a sin between a brother and a sister or brothers and brothers and sisters and sister, we need to deal with those. It's healthy to deal with them and talk about them. So these trivial, insignificant things don't get blown up to where suddenly somebody storms off and takes half the church with them. And you say, well, that's extreme. No, it's the church. If you've ever been involved in the church, that's, that can tend to be what happens. The church should not put on a good face and act like nothing happens in the family. That would be wrong. But for the Corinthian church to air their dirty laundry for all the world to see by taking insignificant issues before a worldly court hampers the ministry of the church to reach the world for Christ's sake. For example, now I'm not on social media in any significant way, praise Jesus. I grew up before social media was around and everybody who's me or older says, praise Jesus, right? But if I should preach one Sunday on loving your neighbor as you love yourself and then get on social media and lay out all the dirty, rotten things that Albert, because he doesn't mind me using him as an example, all the dirty things that he has ever done to me, which he hasn't, by the way. I'm just using it as an example. My witness for Christ and my reputation as a faithful Christian would be harmed. And so would Elm Creek's. 
and the church throughout the world. Does that make sense? Would it not be better for me to go to Albert in private, work through our issues, leave as brothers in Christ who love one another even if we disagree? Would it not be better to bear an injustice than to bring disgrace upon the church and upon Christ? This is what Paul is trying to get across. The church in Corinth has an improper view of life as Christians. They are willing to ruin the reputation of themselves as Christians and church and ultimately Christ for an insignificant thing. Their worldview is all messed up. Or to put it in more technical terms, The church in Corinth needs to view life, Paul says, through an eschatological lens. I had to practice that word about five times. Okay, and there's a reason I'm using it, because it's it's not a bad thing to learn theological terms. Eschatological, eschatology is a fancy theological word, a word that means the study of the end, the study of the last days, that is, the end of history, the second coming of Christ. So what happens when Christ comes, okay? Now twice Paul points out that this, uh, points this out in a negative sense um, when, when talking about the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now in contrast then, the Corinthians, they're believers who will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what is the kingdom? Well, it's his eternal rule and reign over his people. In his great love... God gives himself through Christ and, he, and gives eternal life to those who trust and believe in his Son to save them from his wrath for their rebellion against him. And at the end of history, God's people will be lifted into the position of, as judge, position of judge over the world and judge over angels which is an idea that's hinted at in the book of Daniel. But Paul's point here is, why squabble over trivial cases when you will one day judge the world and angels? You're squabbling over insignificant things. You are willing to ruin the church's reputation and Christ's reputation and your reputation and destroy a brother in Christ for money when one day the two of you will be together and be judging the world. You may be low in social status now, but when Christ comes again, His church, His people, you will be lifted high. And at that time, do you really think this insignificant issue is really going to (laughs) matter? The church... He's saying, you guys should live with eternity in mind. As a theologian I read this week points out, property and material possessions are ultimately of little consequence for us in this life. And that's hard to remember that because our world is materialistic. Like not even like socially, I'm talking like this is material and this is material. Our life revolves around the physical. It revolves around money. It revolves around material possessions, but ultimately they're of little concern to us. Now don't hear me. There's nothing wrong with having material possessions. The concern is whether 
those material possessions begin to rule and reign in your life as a believer. A lawsuit between two Christian brothers over an insignificant issue is evidence that such a problem exists in Corinth. Or to steal an illustration from John Piper that I heard this week, he says, that would be like a person on the way to inherit a million dollars spending the last mile picking up shiny pennies. It doesn't make any sense for a faithful Christian to put so much effort into being right over pennies, picking up the pennies, when you're going to inherit the whole world and everything in it. You you see his point? You see what he's trying to get across? Why spend so much effort and time to be right in this world when one day you'll be given everything through Christ? The Corinthians are to be different than the unbelieving world around them because that unbelieving world will not inherit the kingdom of God. The church is to act differently, not to prove that they are God's people, but because they are God's people. He says in verse 11, but you were washed. This is in past tense. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You have been saved, he's saying. You are children of God. You are the family of God. And you are inheritors of the kingdom of God. The Corinthians were wanting the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers to make judgments over them. They were not seeking the wisdom of those. uh, They were seeking the wisdom of those who don't know or love God. And Paul says in verse 5, is there no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? There's got to be someone in your midst who's got a little bit of wisdom over these significant issues. And the answer to his question is, yeah. Yeah, there are wise among you because you are God's children. And he has made you wise. For though they were once like the world, by God's power, they've been transformed. And so were some of you. So were you. This is how you used to live, but you have been changed. God has cleansed them from their sins. He has made them holy and righteous in His sight. And as Paul reminds them later on in this chapter that we'll look at next week, they are the holy dwelling place of God Himself. God does not come to dwell in imperfect beings. He has made us perfect in His sight. Now, we still sin, we still struggle, but in the eyes of God, His people are holy and righteous and cleansed. And so God comes, He resides with His people. He's with the Corinthians He's guiding them. He's teaching them. And if you have the Spirit of God with you and in you, you have the wisdom of God. Later on, it it says, I think in James, where he says, if you ask for wisdom, he's going to give it to you. He will make you wise. He will give you the answers that you need. You may not like it, but he'll give you the answers that he desires. 
And so the Corinthians, they're not incompetent. They are wise in the Lord. He's challenging them. He's challenging them as, you think you are wise. You think you are, you're so arrogant, you're lifting yourselves up. You think you're spiritually mature, and I'm showing you the evidence that says contrary. But I'm not just going to leave you there and point those out and say how horrible of a church you are. I want to teach you and show you this is not how you are called to live. And so that question that comes to us today as the church, as his people, do we live our lives with eternity in mind? Or are we too caught up in the here and now and the grievances and the hurts that we endure in this life? Are we holding on so tightly to a grievance that we have with a brother or sister in Christ that we're willing to hurt the reputation of the church and of Christ to get our way? And if you're saying, who would do such a thing if you've had any experience within the church? It happens. You don't believe me. I'll throw Alan on the bus. You can talk to him. He's got way more experience with the church than probably any of us here. And he's a former pastor. He could tell you stories. That's not right. And that's not to throw churches under the bus. That's just to say churches struggle with these kinds of things. We hold on so tightly to a hurt. And we hold on to it or it just blows up and we say, enough's enough. Would it not be better to bear an injustice or even be defrauded than to bring disgrace upon the body of Christ. Again, that's not to minimize, it's not to ignore. It's a call, deal with your issues. Deal with your grievances. And deal with, it, with them with a humble heart, out of selflessness. Thinking of others before yourself. Striving to encourage your brother or sister to grow in their maturity. And hopefully they doing the same for you. Because one day we will receive a great inheritance which makes the things of this world pale in comparison. Are we living our lives with eternity in mind or are we living for today? For those who live in the here and now, you already have your reward. This is as good as it's going to get for you. And your inheritance will not be eternal life in the kingdom of God. It will be eternal death away from God's mercy and love. And then, in verse 11, he says, but. I love that word. But. We who belong to God were washed we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. As his people, we have been transformed. We are a people whose inheritance of eternal life in the presence of God should affect how we live in this present age. That's what Paul is trying to get the church to see. And sometimes, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably a daily reminder because of the things of this world, the, the, the struggles, the trials, the burdens. 
man, they could be overwhelming, can't they? I have, I have two sister-in-laws who have breast cancer. One is in stage three. Man, it's overwhelming for my family. And that, that's minor compared to some of the things that you guys have dealt with. But how do you deal with that? Well, we, we keep eternity in mind as Christians. Praise God, both of them are believers. Because we can remind ourselves, this is hard, this is tough. But I don't live for today. In my mind, the worst thing that could happen is that I lose my sister-in-law's here on earth that that would be that would be terrible and i i'm 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 not wanting that (laughs) but as a believer there's this weird pull to say yes but should it happen god forbid should it happen i will see them again and they won't have cancer and we will worship god together for all eternity that mindset for the church it changes us. It, it changes the way we act, the way that we think. It doesn't mean we don't get irritated with politics in our society, but it changes to say, what, what is happening is hard in this world. But my hope is not found in the things of this world. My hope is found in Christ. And he has said, you will be with me for all eternity. And I believe him and I trust him. And he will do what he says. And so as I endure the trials of this life, as we as a church endure the hardships and struggles, conflicts, discord, arguments, disagreements as a church within our body, we should always keep eternity in mind. Now, I I did not work this out today or to have this be done on this date, but we're having an annual meeting. We're talking about budget, and we're talking about elders, and just those two conversations in themselves have torn churches apart. Now, praise God, I've been here for almost nine years. I've never had an annual meeting like that. It, it, I love it. It's, I talk to other pastors, and they're jealous, because it, it is, we have disagreements. We do. But we encourage, we want as a church to stay eternity focused. Doesn't mean we don't shift, doesn't mean we don't change, we don't deal with issues. It means in the end, the budget is not just about 2024. The budget is about eternity. The elders, it's not just about this year, it's about eternity. Reading scripture and preaching and doing Sunday school and, and what's being taught in there. That is not about the here and now it is about ultimately eternity and we when we walk from this place and we leave this building whatever we have planned today as a christian ultimately your mind is on eternity no matter what's for lunch no matter who wins the football games today no matter what phone call you're going to get No matter, no matter my, my wife and my daughter are now driving to South Dakota, anything could happen. 
And whatever may happen, good or bad, I have to keep my mind set on eternity. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it's not difficult or a struggle. What it means is our focus ultimately is not on the here and now. And so may our lives as His people here at Elm Creek, may we reflect that truth more and more each and every day. May we reflect we are a transformed people. We are a changed people who will one day inherit the kingdom of God fully. And material possessions are going to be nothing. 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 And we do this. We live a life that reflects that truth more and more each each day. Not for our glory, not for the glory of Elm Creek or us individually, but for the glory of Christ. And as you walk from here and you got a week between now and next time we meet, more than likely, God is going to probably reveal some times where you're like, well, that was not very God-glorifying, Mark. And that's when you say, thank you, God, for forgiving me. Thank you that my salvation is not dependent upon my perfection, but yours. Change me more and more, God. Teach me. Guide me. And let my life reflect your goodness and your glory. Make me less and make you more. Father, guide us through this. God, this is, it's so easy to hear this on a Sunday morning and say, amen and amen. And then we get into the real world and we're dealing with difficult issues and and hardships and trials and persecution. And we want to handle them correctly, but they can become overwhelming to us, God. Remind us as your people, you've got this in your hand and as your people, In the end, these things are eternally insignificant. But God, we will one day rule with you. You have given us eternal life. It is guaranteed. But we will not experience until we either are gone from this earth or your son comes again. Help us to keep our minds and our hearts and our words and our actions focused on lifting your name up. Give us the strength, Father, to have an attitude of rather having injustice done upon us instead of ruining the reputation and the witness of the church and of your son. Keep us focused on you. And may everything we do as your people, Father, give you the glory that you rightly deserve. We ask this in your name. Amen.